This is no small part. No small part. No small part. This is no small parts. I am Brittany Brewer. the thing i feel like you wear so 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 many hats i do wear a lot of hats Um, (laughs) this is mariangela saavedra i had no idea how much education stuff you also did too for a while because i knew you as like director and maker brain sure right (laughs) (laughs) yep um yeah i i do wear a lot of hats but i kind of always have so Mm She has been working in theater for 27 years and is currently a producer, director, and educator working out of the greater Philadelphia area. It's not really, um, it's it's not really new for me. It's just kind of like I just have to remember which hat's on at what time. <laughs> What's the hat on my? In today's episode of No Small Parts. Mariangela talks about living and working in four major cities, translating theater skills beyond the theater, and the many trials and errors of producing. Cheers. 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 <laughs> Clink. <laughs> oh, man. What are you drinking right now? So, um, a little bit of an invention. Uh, mm. You know what tequila sunrise is? Yes. Well, this, Yum. I didn't have tequila. So, uh, this, <laughs> I'm calling this one a vodka sunset. Okay. But basically, it's orange juice, grenadine, and vodka. I think that could take off. I right. think that's another vacation drink. It's like it's, it's enjoying delicious. yourself. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> I'm really feeling it and following my Indian food. It's working for me. So I'll take it. Oh, I have to slow down because this is number two. So I was like, oh, I should slow my roll a minute. That liquor life. The I'm drinking an old fashioned. I'm like, oh, so nice. easy to drink. And then it's just like, I want so many, but I can't handle as many as I probably want. Sure can't anymore. <laughs> and that's a sad thing. Well, I have discovered the Tito's likes me a lot. Mm. And that's really great. So if I'm drinking vodka now, I'm drinking Tito's. And I can drink a considerable amount of Tito's and feel fine the next day, which is either awesome or alarming. I'm not really sure which yet, but it's... It's, I'm finding it good right now because honestly, anything other than Tito's, and I hate myself the next day. So yes. I'll take it. <laughs> this is going to be exciting because I get to learn a lot about you that I don't know yet. What was your gateway into theater? So, my father was an actor um, my whole life. And uh, I mean, always had a day job, much like me. Um, but. You know, I remember being very small and seeing my father on stage and just immediately being like, yes, whatever this is, I want to be a part of this. Um, And he did dinner theater mostly. So he had, you know, a day job. He was a a police officer for a minute. And then he was uh, an English teacher. And then he became um, a house manager at Wolf Trap in uh, Northern Virginia, Farm Park for the Performing Arts. And he did that for many years. I mean, I tell people I grew up there because I did. (laughs) I like ran around there as a child all the time. Um, And that was really cool. But while doing all those things, he would still do dinner theater and do shows. My father was born an old man. So, you know, he's 23 years old and he's getting cast as like Laser Wolf and Fiddler on the Roof and and totally believable. Like doesn't look like a 23 year old, looks like a, you know, 30, 40 year old man on stage. So um, he he was also very much that type, that sort of Zero Mistel type actor, which was really popular in the 80s after Zero Mistel like died. So 
he sort of played on that. And so those were like his, his bread and butter roles. And so I, I grew up going to the theater. And um, when I was five, my father cast me in my first play uh, in, in The Sound of Music as Gretel. Uh, and it was awesome. Um, I mean, I remember it as awesome. Uh, the people that tell me the stories about it tell me that it was less than awesome for my father uh, because apparently I was a touch spoiled, go figure. And uh, I had some, some serious ideas about the show and how I wanted to do it. That is great. <laughs> and when it didn't match with my father's directing style or what he wanted me to do, then things um, got challenging. Um, the, the best story, the shortest one I'll share with you is that um, he was choreographing So Long Farewell and he was choreographing it was just like one hand like so it's, it's supposed to be two hands so long as one hand farewell is the other hand and he was just doing it with one arm and I was really upset about it and I was like no this is a two-armed movement like this needs to be two arms and my dad's like nope Marangela we're gonna do it with one arm and this is this is how we're doing it and I was like getting ready to like dig in and throw a fit and he could tell the fit was coming so he basically grabs me and jerks me out of line with all the other kids, drags me over to the side and right in my face goes, Mary Angela, the girl playing Brigida only has one arm. We are doing it with one arm. And I was like, uh, okay, like, you know, like, like, what? She had a prosthetic arm, so she could not do it with two arms. But like, you know, he was like, had to get in my face about it. And apparently that was just one of many stories oh like that. Gosh. And so my father swore me off after that. And he said, I'll never cast you in anything again. Like, not that I'm directing. I'll help you get parts all you want, but like, I'm not directing you again. Uh, and he stuck to that. My father never directed me again. Uh, I, I did work with him as a, in technical theater, though. I stage managed for him uh, when I got older. So uh, that is how I got started in it. I definitely um, wanted to be an actress. That was like my huge dream most of my life i definitely acted in high school but but as it got closer to like college is coming my father actually sat me down and said look the truth is you know you're one of a million people if you go out and try to be an actor but if you like money and want to get paid you have a mind for technical theater and if you want to learn that you will always be hired like that you will always be able to work and then you can act when Smart. you want to like yeah. you can you can act when when you feel moved to but you don't have to do that as you're living and um that seemed like a pretty good deal to me because i had already learned that acting comes with a lot of rejection and i don't handle rejection so well mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah that was that was really how i i sort of stepped into that world and he kind of by accident gave me my first technical theater job um, and it really boiled down to he wanted more money. So he was in a one-man show called The Last Lincoln at Ford's Theater, and the director to him said, you know, I, I really need to hire someone to, to, to be sound effects. Someone's got to fire off this gun because he was playing Robert Todd Lincoln, and Robert Todd Lincoln saw three assassinations in his lifetime, one of which being Lincoln. And, uh, and so he's like, I need someone just to pull the trigger on this gun. Do you know anybody? This is an actor, somebody who wants to make a couple extra bucks and my dad says how much extra bucks are we talking about and the guy's like mm, like 15 to 20 dollars a show and my dad does quick math in his head and is like oh there's nine performances my daughter will do it <laughs> 
And he's like, well, how's your daughter? And he's like, oh, my daughter's 13. She'll be fine. Like, she's been coming to the theater since she has a baby. She's fine. She'll do it. And so I got to do this really cool show where I got wow. to fire off a starter pistol three times during a production. That's crazy. Um, and that, it's on my resume to this ah. day. If I, if I give you a technical <laughs> resume, the first thing you're going to see is 1987 Ford's Theater special or sound effects that's my first my first gig that's it counts right i didn't i didn't really see the money my dad kept that money but it was fine it's fine he put a roof over my head so that's the least i could do be fine. did you go to school for theater i did not originally mm -hmm. um i my whole plan was to graduate from high school and then go work in theater like that had just been the plan i wasn't even going to waste my time with college because i didn't have a lot of money. My grades weren't great. And so I was like, this will be a struggle. Why do this? And uh, oddly, about two weeks before my graduation, literally, um, I had taken choir as an elective just because I needed a slot to fill my senior year. And this choir from West Virginia Institute of Technology showed up and my choir teacher was like, I want to show them some of our singers. And all the stars, of course, were like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then she's like, I need one more song. Does anybody else have anything? And I'm like, oh, I'm working on that song for the showcase. Like, I'll take it because, you know, I need the practice, truthfully, is what I was thinking. And out of all the people, the director walked up to me and said, where are you going to college? And I said, oh, I'm not going to college. I'm going to go work in theater. And he says, what if I said, I'll give you college for free? Will you Holy go to college? Smokes. And I was like, yeah, OK, I'll go to college. Oh, <laughs> like, that's amazing. So I was a music major for three years. Uh, and then I switched to theater because I, you know, I didn't want to be an opera singer. That's that's the path that music majors go in or they become music teachers. And I didn't want to do either of those things. And so I was like, thanks for the free education. I'm going to go transfer over to this school now. And I'll, I'll you know, I've been living in the state long enough. I qualify for in-state tuition and I'm going to go study theater. So uh, Marshall University, I was in the acting and directing program that was your choice acting directing or technical theater and as much as I wanted to do technical theater I was like I should probably stick to the acting directing track I'm just more experienced there and truthfully I wanted to direct so yeah so was, was that your first time really diving into directing well actually no uh, I had directed two shows in high school um kind of just because I wanted to um I remember the first show I did in, in high school was The Insanity of Mary Gerard, and I did it as a senior. And um, my father saw that show and, you know, said to me, there's a lot, there's a lot of good things you did in the show. He's like, but you made a lot of like first time director mistakes. And here they are, because, you know, everything was a learning opportunity for my father. Being an educator, he was like, we're going to do this. And uh, yeah, he it was a long list, but... I mean, they're literally things that I remember to this day. I never make those mistakes again. It's fine. So yeah, that was that was really when it started, and that's kind of why I knew I sort of liked that element of control, that that creative input more than I liked being the person being sort of moved around as an actor. Um, and the directing program at Marshall was really good. Um, they made you take sort of all the technical theater classes. Oh, that's so great. I, I took a lighting design class. I took a set design class. I took, you know, all kinds of costume design. So when I left there, I, even though I wasn't in their technical theater program, I was super prepared to work in technical theater because I had done all of those things. Like I, so that was, that was the next step. That was right after college. I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina and I 
got really involved in um, the theater scene there. I tried to work in film and television for a minute. And yeah, that was a hotbed at one point, wasn't it? It sure was. And that was why I moved there. I moved there. Uh, Dawson's Creek was in its third season when I moved there. And I, I moved there to, to be a part of that. And, uh, and then we started being a part of that. And I was like, wow, film and television is awful. <laughs> like, this is the worst. It's just hours and hours of your life. You don't get back. And it's like so much hurry up and wait. You're like, oh, I'm going to be working for 15 hours, but a good solid 12 of it is going to be standing around yes. doing absolutely nothing. Yes. And I was like, I don't have the patience for that. You know, I like to show up at the theater an hour before, get ready, have mm -hmm. the show and be in the bar an hour after. Like that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there it is. That's, that's theater. And this was like, hey, show up and work this long, long day. And after weeks of working this schedule, we're going to flip you. And now you're going to work the same schedule, but you're going to start at six o'clock at night and end at six o'clock in the morning. And by the way, you're going to have no friends because, you know, the money is good. They do make it up to you with the money. I will say that. It's got to be something. But yeah, after a while, I was like, I hate this. This is not me. So I... I used those technical theater skills and I made myself super valuable to like every theater company in Wilmington. And I was just like, what do you need? Oh, you need a stage, you need a stage manager? I'll stage manage. You need a costume designer? I'm your girl. Just tell me what you need. I can do it. And I, at one point had like six jobs at the same time. Wow. Like I was working for like six different companies. Um, that was always the running joke in my family was how many jobs are you working right now? And I'd be like, oh, this many. Um, the, my favorite was I did costumes for two very different productions of A Christmas Carol, both in the same building, one in an experimental black box theater on the second floor and one in the main stage theater on the first floor. One started at 7.30 and one started at eight. So all I had to do was just run the stairs in the back like constantly to make sure whatever was happening in whichever show that was going on was okay. Oh, this woman needs to be tied into a bustle. I'm there tying you into the bustle. Okay. I'm sorry. I got to go upstairs because now I need to go find like, you know, boots and shoes for this next person. It was bananas, but it was the most fun. And I like, you know, could only do it cause I was in my twenties. Like there's no way I'd, I'd be able to do that today. <laughs> oh God. About yeah. It. How did you connect with all those different companies while you were in North Carolina? Was it just a lot of cold reaching out? Yeah, I mean, for the most part. So um, what happened was when I first got there, I got there in the fall of 1999. And um, I took a minute to like, you know, get find the day job, <laughs> find the job that was going to keep the roof over my head, um, which was like daycare. It was a like nine to five oh, Monday through that's Friday. Down, better like. than serving. I almost exactly. told everyone not to do that now after I did that for a bit. Yeah, I knew immediately I did not want to do that. So I was like, hey, I like children. Children like me, daycare. This is fine. Um, and I really loved that it was held to this window of nine to five. Like there was no way I was going to work earlier. There was no way I was going to work later. Boom, there I am. Um, and so then once that happened, um, the summer came around and there was this company called Cape Fear Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, was that the name at the time? They've changed their name like three times. That was their name. And they were having these open auditions and I was like, I don't want to be in this show. They were doing Pericles. Uh, and so I thought I definitely don't want to be in this show, but I wouldn't mind being involved in some way. Like, let's see what you need again. What do you need? I can pretty much do it all. Tell me what you need. 
So I just showed up at the auditions and I walked up to the stage manager who was taking the audition forms and I said, I don't want to audition, but I definitely want to work crew and I'm totally available and I do pretty much everything. So you can plug me in wherever you need me. And she said, you know, do you have a resume? I was like, hey, here you go. And they called me pretty much like the next day. And they were like, look, we have a costumer, but this show requires a lot of like specialty pieces and like you know, crowns and like medallion necklaces because they wanted like a very like sort of greek tribal kind of feel to it and they were like she's not good with that is that something you can do and i'm like oh yeah backstory ah i'd never done anything like that before in my life but i'm gonna tell you yes because i'm like i want this job it's paying like 500 bucks i'll take it so i just you know kind of got some ideas in my head where i was like i can do this if i believe i can do this i can do this and I met with the costume designer and um, and we hit it off really well. And I was able to build some really cool things. I made like four crowns and several like cool neck pieces and um, did some fun stuff with like, you know, things that like held togas together. Like, I don't know what you call those, like brooches, yes, yeah. like big stuff. And most of it was made out of just me like bending wire and like hot gluing in like fake stones and like nonsense, but it, it worked and people loved it. So um, from that, I met, pretty much everybody that was involved in that had their hands in one of the other companies in, in the town. Mm -hmm. So I just, I immediately met everybody kind of in one place. So after that, then people were like, oh, you know, if you need this, you want Mary Angela, because obviously I talk a lot. That's so <laughs> during, so the, during this process, I just kind of sold myself where mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, if you ever need a stage manager, I'm a really good stage manager. I'm really good at this. And people just remembered and just started calling out to me and being like, Hey, can you come and do this? I need this. Can you do that? I sure can. Let's make it happen. Um, yeah, and it, it worked out really great. And some of them are companies that have been around for a long time there, and some were brand new, like startups, like just kind of like, we're going to try this, see what happens. How did you make your way from Wilmington to Philly? Well, that was not a direct line. I, I was uh, wondering. <laughs> <laughs> so after uh four and a half years in wilmington i i ended up in chicago and that yeah. i got to chicago the same way i got to wilmington so what happened was right after college i was at a like party and somebody said hey like has anybody thought about moving to wilmington i hear dawson's creek is filming there i hear there's film there there's a good theater scene anybody want to go Ooh, i'll go and i joined three guy friends of mine and we moved to wilmington and so then four and a half years later, I'm at a party in Wilmington <laughs> and a guy friend of mine is like, hey, anybody thought about moving to Chicago? I hear they've got great theater. I'll move to Chicago. Why not? Let's do it. So sold everything and packed up and moved to Chicago where I mm. worked in theater for several years. And then I met my husband at a wedding at a friend of ours had a wow. wedding in Maryland. And I huh. flew in from Chicago to sing at the wedding and he was the guitarist and we started, Stop it. Yeah, we, oh started, we started dating like <laughs> super great. long distance. And then he says, you know, would you be interested in coming back east? And I thought, well, I, I'm not going to like, he lived in like rural Maryland at the time. Yeah, I was like, yep. I'm, I'm not leaving Chicago for rural Maryland. Sorry, <laughs> Betty. But I was like, you know, I, I do like the East Coast and those winters in Chicago are hard. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, where could I go? And I didn't want to do New York because it was so expensive. And I didn't want to do D.C. because... Um, what I knew from my father and growing up there was that the DC theater scene is a 
hard nut to crack. Like it really is. It's it's like old money and old people like tight doing theater there. Not that it's not good. They definitely there's good theater coming out of Washington D.C. But it's just so hard to like whittle in. And I was like, I don't want to work that hard. I want to go somewhere else. And my husband actually said at the time, he was like, Have you thought about Philadelphia? And I was like, I haven't. Like. Let me let me look and see what Philadelphia's got to offer and they happen to have a job at the Kimmel Center and I was like, let's do it. Let's let's do that. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> so. When choosing a city to live and work in to pursue art, there's a lot to consider. Do you want to be close to family, friends or other support systems? Do you know anyone who lives or works in the city who you can speak with in advance or who you can connect with once you move? What kind of arts being made in the city? Does it excite you? What's the cost of living in the city? Is it feasible for you right now? Are you willing to get a day job to help balance your finances? What's the weather like? And are you okay with it? Mariangela touches on these questions throughout our conversation. When did you first realize that producing was a thing that you could do? That would have been in Wilmington. So cool. I started watching people, like I said, these companies where people were like, you know what? You know, I'm going to form a company so I can do this one show that I've always wanted to do. And then they'd like fizzle out and like never do another thing. And it didn't seem to matter that that's what they did. Like it was okay. Like I'm going to, you know, do all this work and I'm going to form this company. I'm going to raise this money and I'm going to produce this show and it's going to be great. And then I'm going to go on and do something else and not do anything else again with this company. And so I thought, well, if no one cares, if it's a thing where I could just start a company and be like, we're doing this one thing and then be like, peace, I'm done then I'm going to do that. And so I raised a bunch of money and got a bunch of friends together and I did a production of The Insanity of Mary Gerard <laughs> uh, because I wanted to do it better than I had done it in high school. Oh my gosh, that's great. Is that, have you done that show three, four? four? I was going to ask if there was one more time. <laughs> there was. There was a time in college. So there was a time in high school, a time in college, a time in Wilmington, and then a time here. Uh, I'm done. I'm done, done, done with that show. <laughs> Super done. Uh, but this one was my own dollar bill. You know, this was like, yes. okay, yeah. everything I ever, you know, when you're in high school, I remember I had to, ch I had to cut a lot of the text in high school because the teachers were really offended by the word cuckolded. They hated that. And they, you know, devil's harlot was a problem. Had to cut all this stuff. Then when I did it in college, it was a similar situation. You know, I'm kind of in the Bible belt of West Virginia. Some things were a little too edgy, the, you know, director of the, of the department. And this wasn't college where I went to theater school. This was when I was a music major. So, you know, there was no theater program there. And she was just like, you're going to get my whole little, like, you know, hobby theater drama club shut down with this edgy show. you got to fix it. And I'm like, okay, sure. So when I had the chance to use my own money, I thought no one can tell me what I can and can't do here. Like, this is it. I'm producing this. I'm making this happen. We're going to do it. And um, I did not have a lot of money. I barely had enough money to rent the space. Fortunately, the venue was the Experimental Theater in Thalian Hall, which is a really old, gorgeous theater. And then the upstairs is this little black box. And they didn't need money up front. So they basically said, appeal. here's what we do. You know, we tell you how much it is you give us this tiny little deposit that just says, I'm serious. I'm not going to like bail and not do this show mm -hmm. um, because we're holding like valuable calendar space for you. Totally. And, and then they said, you make your money. You, you like, you sell tickets and they run the box office. So they're like, mm -hmm. we get our cut of the box office. And it was something crazy. They got like 
I mean, it was it was bananas. It was like, like they got six, they got like sixty percent <laughs> of my box office. They took, um, and because they knew I needed some money, so they give me mm-hmm. some. And then they said, whatever you don't make, if you don't cover the amount this costs, that's okay. You can make payments. Like you know, wow. it'll be this just this bill, this invoice, huh. and then you know, your name will be mud if you don't pay this off eventually. Yeah. But like, don't feel pressured to like I have to you know because they had been around the block enough to know that shows don't always make it and yeah. particularly shows from companies that are new and starting up and you know have to build an audience so it was a great experience because i really felt like i'd done the show perfectly and i pulled in a lot of favors like actors worked for pennies mostly food for me and you know a lot of love and adoration where i was just like thank you for doing this um same thing with like set people i knew a, a lighting guy who was amazing and he just happened to be the resident lighting guy at the theater and I said I can't offer you anything but like a bottle of Glen Levitt could you please do this show for me and he was like sure and I'm like oh thank you cool we're good um great next and it just sort of worked out and after that I thought well this is much easier than than I thought like you know I guess I had been real nervous like producing seemed like this huge thing I couldn't do and then I did it and was like, well, that wasn't terrible. I could definitely do that again. Um, but then I moved to Chicago. <laughs> so then it was like new town. Uh, but I, I did the same thing. I formed a, a small theater company. Um, we were in Wilmington. We were the Starving Artist Theater Ensemble, because we all were. Uh, in Chicago, we were the Storytellers Theater Ensemble. And then I moved to Philadelphia and pretty much the first thing I did my first summer here was form Casa Buena. Cause I was like, this is, I, I know for sure. It just, even if I didn't do anything with it right away, I needed to have that sort of in the, in the back to be like, this is something that's ready and I can do something with it. So yeah, it was definitely a daunting like idea and it took a lot of risk. But once I got through to the other side, I was like, yeah, this is now I understand people they can do this this is not as scary as it looks it takes something that I feel like is beautiful and fantastical to be like I want to move to this place so I'm just gonna move to this place that was really me I didn't have really roots so much anywhere I was just kind of like I'm willing to try anything for a minute you know I probably would have stayed in Chicago um, maybe, maybe not. Those winters were really rough, but the yeah. theater scene in yeah. Chicago is downright amazing. There's something crazy, like 160 operating theater companies in Chicago and they're all good. Like from the tiniest to the largest, they're just, just amazing theaters happening there. And I was like, that's really great. It's just that for seven months out of the year, that city kind of so beats cool. you down. It really does. It's just like, uh, uh, uh. You're like, no, I can't take it anymore. I gotta go somewhere else. Um, but yeah what kind of work are you drawn to producing I prefer comedies um, which was not always the case if you had asked sort of 20 or early 30 year old me I would have been like oh I want like the dark and twisty stuff just all of that (laughs) so that was thus the draw to Mary Gerard yes I was gonna say (laughs) but when I moved to Chicago the first show I produced there was an adult evening of Shel Silverstein, like a complete opposite of what I had been doing because I wanted to know if I could do it. I, up until that point, I really hadn't directed a comedy. I had been pretty much solely focused on 
these sort of dark and twisty pieces. And when I found out how much fun that was and how much more like as a director, how much more creativity you kind of have in that because, you know, with comedy, what makes someone laugh is so diverse. Like, <laughs> so, you know, with, with serious and with drama, like this is an emotion, it's serious, it's heavy, it's, there it is. With comedy, it's like, well, this might be funny to somebody or this might be funny to somebody. Like, let's play with this. So yeah, I, I did that. And, um, and then pretty much after that, I, almost exclusively stuck to dramas. I did produce um, one production of Beirut in Chicago. Um, it's a drama <laughs> um, and it was really good. Honestly, when that process was over, I really was kind of like, yeah, I've really outgrown doing the dark theater pieces. It was a great experience and I'm glad I did it. Um, but I lost a lot of money. It was a show in February, so it was not a comedy and it was in February in Chicago. So um, yeah, I ended up, it took me probably a year and a half to pay off that venue. Um, they were a place that was also pretty understanding. They were just kind of a venue for rent. And the guy basically told me as long as I made payments, he wouldn't sue. But the minute I missed a payment, he was going to take me to court. Wow. And I was like, no problem. I'm going to pay you mm -hmm. like every two weeks. You're going to get money from me until this is done. And at the end of like a year and a half, I paid him off and he was like, I cannot thank you enough for like your professionalism, the fact that you, you know, mm -hmm. did exactly what you said you were going to do. You know, I could literally only afford to pay him like 50 bucks every two weeks. Yes. Yeah. But, but I was like, I'm going to pay you 50 bucks every two weeks for like a year and a half. And in a year and a half, you're going to have your money back and we're going to call it good. And I think he didn't believe I'd do it, mm -hmm. which is probably why he thanked me so much. Right? Like, <laughs> thank you. Because I'm sure he's looking at me going, girl, you're not paying me $50 for a year and a half every two years. Like, give me a break. But I was like, I don't want to be sued. And I may yes. one day want to rent your venue again. Yes. So <laughs> please take my money. Oh and whatever my form it God. takes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Would you walk me through your most memorable experience with staged or workshop readings and producing? Yeah, so I only have one actually of a of a reading slash workshop that I produced. I've been involved in several readings and workshops, but um, I haven't. I've only taken on one to actually produce, um, and that was in the spring, like April of 2015. It was here in Philadelphia, and I produced um, a staged reading with talk back after every performance of talk radio, and. I did it for two reasons. I was approached by the Stagecrafters Theater and they have like a Reader's Theater series. And they were like, look, you know, we always invite someone to, to produce something and put it up here and you can do original work or you can do a work that already exists and we'll have a talk back and it'll be great. And I said, okay, yeah, I'd be very interested in that. How about talk radio? And I did it because um, the I had an actor in mind who absolutely was not the the type to look at or, or listen to is not the type for the lead character of Barry Champlain, which he's supposed to be like a shock jock. I don't know if you know the, the story, but um, Barry's kind of a foul mouthed jerk on the radio, kind of the original um, shock jock. And um, plays written by Eric Bogosian, so it's based on who Eric Bogosian is. And I was like, there's this actor who always plays this like super nice, sweet guy, sometimes funny, you know, never ever the jerk. I would love to see if I can get him to be a jerk. And that's like like the ultimate director's challenge. And I was like, I would never risk that in a 
for production, right? Because if you can't pull that off, like, holy cow, like, what have you done? So I thought a reading, that's perfect because no harm, no foul. And there'll be a talk back after every night. So if he doesn't hit the mark, they're going to tell him why he didn't, right? They're going to give him all this feedback. And so I was like, this is like win-win on all kinds of fronts. And then I realized, you know, talk radio is basically three actors on stage and then everybody else is like on a microphone calling in as callers. So I was like, this will be fun for my friends. Or I'm like, you get to play some voices and some have five characters. Just come up with different voices for them. And I did that. And it was so great because, first of all, the audience of the Stagecrafters is older. So this was kind of a show they probably never would have seen of their own volition. Um, and then I think they really liked it. And they gave me really good feedback and they gave him really good feedback and every performance he kind of got better and better and um and it was really very interesting to kind of watch his process and we did stage it so it you know they had script in hand but you know we set it up like it was the inside of a recording studio he sat and talked into a live mic so that it mixed with the sound of the callers calling in like it was really kind of well done and I think it was the second performance, the second night, where somebody in the audience said, I really like this, but what I would have liked better is seeing the callers. So that planted the seed for me to apply to have the show directed at Allen's Lane. And I submitted a proposal and I, based on that workshop reading and was like, I want to do this. And the reason why I want to do it is because I, I want to show the callers. I think that should be done. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really, really great experience. And it was so interesting, the questions people asked, like, you know, the show is a little bit dated. And so in some cases they sort of honed in on that. Oh, like we would never say that. That's completely like, you know, NPC, like, holy cow. Like even for a shock jock, that's, that crossed the line. You know, why didn't you change that? That was always my favorite question. Why didn't, and I'm like, because playwrights wrote something it's a it's a capsule of time it's the reason why we do of mice and men and we don't edit that show and that show has plenty of things we don't say anymore that are politically incorrect but it's that snapshot of the world at that time and talk radio is a snapshot of the 1980s in new york city <laughs> and those are those people so it was really um yeah it was it was a great reading experience i would love to produce more um I'm probably going to be have my hands a little bit in some readings um, uh, now at Allen's Lane. I've been appointed the, the new theater program manager there. Awesome. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And they want me to develop a reader's theater program. So um, cool. Cool. I, I would like to lean on new playwrights. I think yes. there's such value in getting a new playwright, a play in front of an audience, even as a reading, so that then the audience can tell you, like, this didn't work for me or this did work for me, more of this. Like that's incredibly important to the creative process because I mean, playwrights are playwrights are one person and sometimes they get stuck in their own head and you need that audience feedback to be like, this is how this sounds to me. This is what this does to me, fix this or run with that. Um, so I'm pretty excited about developing that. In the case of producing talk radio, did they give you a budget? What were you responsible for generally yeah pretty much everything so yeah they they just they handed me a, a, a relatively small budget um mm -hmm. and then basically said if you you know need or want more than that you, you kind of got to come up with it um they gave me dates and then 
they said if you need rehearsal space we can probably eke out some for you but it would be better if you could find someplace else to rehearse so it was very it was very minimal it was really that's why i consider it literally i produced it definitely, we had rehearsals definitely. in my house i fed everybody i would have like yep. big meals first we always rehearsed on a sunday and i'd be like come over and eat and then now we're all gonna that's so nice block this and yeah. you know i don't have they didn't give me enough budget to pay you all so all yeah. i can do is feed you, feed you but i will feed you a lot so mm. here we go um yeah so it made it it made it helpful in that sense and they did a, a little bit of marketing their their marketing for their readers theater is you know pretty much like a flyer that goes to their subscriber base so i went beyond that and i made a poster and i put it up the different restaurants down mm -hmm. um, Germantown Avenue and I took care of that kind of stuff That's a because big deal. Yeah. it is I mean you have to if you don't see it you don't know yeah. that it's happening so I did it how long was that process wow let's see we ran it in April I definitely started in the winter I want to say I started probably like gathering people right around the holidays. And then we rehearsed it a bunch in January, February, and a little bit of March, and then ran it in April, just kind of, you know, giving people time to chew on it. I definitely worked with the lead, Jim, more than anyone else in that group, because again, it was such a part against time that I had to like, we're gonna need to spend some table time talking about this. But it made for when I actually got it up to a full production, which I was able to bring almost the entire cast from that reading onto the production um, and I definitely kept Jim in the role when I did that it made the work I had to do with him so much easier because I was like oh we've already done that <laughs> like you, you remember that I mean and that's that's such a cool part about reading sometimes is when you're able to make that yeah carry through that's another real big value to doing it worth it and they usually cost so much less you if you're doing a play that exists and has rights, you do have to pay the rights to do a reading. But oftentimes, playwriting, uh, playwrights companies will negotiate the rate. It's a different rate for a reading versus a full stage performance because you're not going to sell tickets to a reading like you would to a full production. So they have to adjust for that, which is great. Um, or if you're doing an original show, well, then there's, you know, oftentimes the playwright's just so happy you're going to workshop up his show that he's like, I'm not going to charge you any rights. So you're like, I like you. We're doing this. Thanks. So. As you like produce more readings or staged readings in the future, what do you feel like are your non-negotiables? Like these things I need or I feel like I want to get done for this to be the most successful. That's a great question. Um, I would say uh, it's a couple things like mm -hmm. uh, I need I need a certain number of of rehearsals um, like with everybody. I know that sometimes especially in community theaters you can pull together a pretty solid production without having everybody at the same place at the same time until like the 11th hour and that's a little bit of the magic of theaters like where you're like cool. <laughs> We haven't all been in the same room ever before, but here we are at Tech, and now we've done it, and it's great. Uh, that doesn't always happen. But for, for a reading, because a reading is, is so different, um, especially if you're doing an original work, you want to do it so well because this might be the first time this particular piece has had a true voice, and now it's going in front of people. And um, with newer work, you're, nobody's bringing anything to it in the sense of like already oh i saw this at this theater 
Um, and even if it's something that's already been done, it's a similar situation where it's like, well, it's a reading, it's not a full production. So how do I convey this? So it's really important to definitely have to get a, a good commitment from the people who want to be involved. I mean, marketing is a key piece. I, I will do the marketing and part of my job as the theater program manager for Allen's Lane will be marketing. But if someone were to ask me beside that particular job, like if, you know, another theater were to say, I want you to do a stage reading here, I would definitely ask questions about the marketing of it yes. because nobody likes to put that kind of work in and then mm -hmm. six people are sitting in front of you and they might be the six most appreciative people. Like I'm not saying small audiences aren't appreciative because they are, but with a workshop reading, you need more voices. You need more people to say what they liked, what they didn't like. Like that's, that's the point of the reading, right? Or you're trying to, expose people to a show they might not have seen before like at the stage characters that was my whole choice behind this play you know a big part of it was that i'm like these people probably never saw anything like this in their lives so i want them to see it and i want to make sure that as many of them can see it as possible so those are the two really big ones for me is like how are we gonna get the word out get butts and seats and then also like are my participants really committed Mostly for my own curiosity, and you might not know, how many shows have you been a part of producing? <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> That's a lot. I figured, um, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. Casabina has been around seven seasons, two shows a year, sometimes three. So let's say 14, 18. Uh, I'm pushing 30, probably between 28 and 30. That's roughly. amazing. Yes, yeah. It, like I said, once I did it that first time, I was like, this is nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> because, you know, uh, who was it? There was some famous person. It might have been Lin-Manuel Miranda, actually, who, who said something like, I wrote this play because I wanted to work. And that's kind of how I feel about producing. Well, I produce plays because I want to work. And so it's easier than me having to sell myself to somebody else to be like, okay, I'll pay you to do this. Instead, I'm just like, I'm gonna do this. This is what I wanna do, we're making it happen. How does producing complement everything else you do right now? Like what's, what's the percentages eke out to now? <laughs> yeah, well, I only work like 30 hours a week for my day job. So then there's another solid 20 hours a week that's devoted to this. So, and that's, you know, producing and, and you know, doing theater work. Um, so it's, it's definitely not quite 50-50 yet, but it's pretty close uh, to that. And um, I would say that the skill set that you use to produce is so applicable in a thousand other fields. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, I think my dad identified that pretty early in me where he was like, you're definitely, you know, you, you like to perform. You definitely have that gene in you. I'm a performer. You're a performer. I get that. But not every performer has that sort of like production administration brain because a producer is more than just a director, right? Your producer is, is that whole administrative wheel yeah. of theater, right? It's the box office. It's yes. the marketing. It's the like all of that. And I think he saw that pretty early where he was like, you are definitely wired for that. You should think about that because that could definitely make you money. So I feel like I'm really prepared for the things that I do now, like even my day job. Yes. I, my, my, all the work I've done in theater 
up until now has prepared me. My day job isn't a theater day job anymore. I left the Kimmel Center in 2013 and I worked as an office manager for a youth choir and that was great. And then I found this job as a director um, at the Center on the Hill, which is a basically a rec center for active adults um, in Chestnut Hill. And when I interviewed, you know, they, they kept asking me these questions, but like, you don't have experience with like, you know, working with seniors and with like, like all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, but I do. Because in theater, like that's what we're doing, right? Where it's everybody, there's no age limit. There's no, I'm, I'm working with all kinds of people and bringing them together to do something creative and awesome and active <laughs> together. Yeah. Um, and patron services at the Kimmel Center, same thing. Those were all, you know, ages of people, but primarily people who were retired who had subscriptions and that was my job. My job was being the manager of patron services. So when they would call and want to exchange their tickets or I hate my seats this year, or, oh my gosh, the guy next to me snores through all the concerts. You have to move <laughs> me to a different series than he's in because I can't take him anymore. Like that's, my job is to be like, absolutely. Let's see what we've got. Let's, you know, you know what? Oh, I'm sorry. Your seat for the Broadway series and behind that pole, the Academy of Music. Let me get you moved this year. Let, let me find you a better seat that's not behind the pole. Like, so that it's that skill set, right? Everything I do, I use all those skills, and it really did start from figuring out how to produce a play myself, just doing it for the first time. That's the thing. It's such an unexpected, I mean, role and conglomeration of skills. Um, as you've been producing, what's an instance where a, a challenge came up or something came up where you would have never like seen it coming or it's something like holy smokes I didn't think about this when I went to produce this <laughs> show this is a thing we also have to do what is happening yeah there have been a couple moments <laughs> like that um so my first show here in Philadelphia um do you know where I think it's called the Schmitz Commons now? It's in Northern Liberties, but it okay. used to be it used to be called the Piazza at Schmitz. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that was brand spanking new the summer of two thousand nine when I'd first moved here. And my roommate, I lived in South Philly. My roommate at the time, she was renting a space there, got like a steal for it to do like run a vintage store there because they were it was crazy. It was something like four hundred dollars a month for wow. right for a retail space at the Piazza, huh. and she says. I can't really afford 400 bucks a month, but if you split it with me, I could afford 200 bucks a month. And I'm like, I can afford 200 bucks a month. Let's do this. And I was like, I'll run my theater company out of it. Like, you know, produce a show there, which basically means let me store my props there and put up a poster for my show that's going to happen. And then you sell your vintage clothes out of it and we're good. And, you know, I have a place to rehearse and a bathroom when we need it. And um, the performance space the piazza in the center has their main stage at one end and then they have like a little little mini lawn with a fountain at the back end and i was like that's where i want to perform we can perform on the fountain and people can sit on the little lawn that'd be cool and right how perfect is that and i had cleared it with like everybody and it was we'd been rehearsing there yeah it was a really good vibe and and you know once in a while on the big screen they would you know, put up a Phillies game or something, but it was never anything to what I know happens there now. And they had like a program manager and I told him like, okay, so this week in July, every night at like seven o'clock, I'm going to run this show right here and it's going to be great. And he was like, okay, no problem. 
And I did it for, it was like, it was like three weekends in July. And on the last weekend, he went out of town and he says, oh, it's no problem. Like, you know, my, my assistant or whatever, he's going to be there and it's going to be fine. And I said, well, I saw this flyer and I noticed that at like, you know, eight o'clock, um, this concert's supposed to be happening. Oh, no. And, and he says, oh yeah, but it's at eight o'clock. Your show's at seven and it runs like 30 minutes and like, like 40 minutes max. And I was like, okay. I said, but you know, and I don't mind, that's fine. But what can't happen is like, there can't be an opening band that starts at seven o'clock or like, because then that's directly across from me. And it's like competitive, like we, we can't do that. And he was like, oh yeah, no problem. I'll, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. So we start performing at seven o'clock and at like seven fifteen, the band decides that they're going to tune. They're going to, they all, they all showed up and they were like, we're just going to tune our instruments. And so they start tuning and hmm. I'm, I'm in the show. So what I didn't tell you about this show was I lost an actor mm. and I literally had to step into a role. So I'm not free to go over and right and do the do the producer's job, which would be like turn this off. Oh like I, instead, I'm sitting on stage perfectly in character as Queen Gertrude. It was like a Hamlet spoof, and I'm, you know, sitting there and I'm just looking at the lead actress who's just staring at me like, what do we do? Because speaking is useless. Like no one is hearing us at this point. And so I looked at her, and then I looked down at them, and I looked back at her, and before I could even say anything. She just takes off running like across the piazza <laughs> and she's waving, she's jumping up and down and waving her hands because they can't hear her. They're all damning. And she's all like, woo. And she's got this little retractable knife in her hand. Holy smokes. <laughs> oh no. So <laughs> and, I, and I just hear them kind of like, and, they, and then of course, you know, when, when you stop a band mid-play, someone's still playing and you know, it's like that oh, whole yeah. like weird taper off situation and we're all just kind of frozen <laughs> down there. And I'm like, I know that my producer hat should be on and I should get up and go walk with her. But instead I'm like, she seems to have it. I'm just going <laughs> to see like, I'm going to see what's going on. I'm going to see how she does. And, you know, I saw him lean down and she did a lot of dramatic hand gestures and waved a little knife around and pointed to the other end and did some things. And then he kind of nodded and then he kind of turned around and whispered some things to the guys. And then the guys put down their guitars and they all walked <laughs> off the stage and she came tromping back. And like, we just sort of picked up where we left off. And I was like, okay, like I, okay. <laughs> and when the show was over, right after I took my, my bow, I immediately took off and went across to where they were now starting to set up again. And huh. I went up and I'm like, I'm so sorry. And they were like, yeah, that little angry girl with the knife came oh over gosh. and started like shouting at us and saying like you were doing a play and that we couldn't hear. And, and like nobody told us. They just said, go ahead and warm up. And I was like, of course, of course they did. So, yeah, I didn't see that coming. No, um, that was definitely not expected. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, you can't predict weather. You can't. That's why they always tell you, you know, never, never share. Outdoor theater is risky. And then there's never share a stage with like children and animals, right? Because, mm. and I have pretty much stuck to that. I do obviously do shows with kids. Um, I do teach younger children theater. When you talk to your students or folks in general about the line of work that you do, how do you describe producing and what producing is and entails? Yeah, um, <laughs> I pretty much just you know I. I tell them that I make it happen. I often use the term one woman show because I'm just like, I do it all. I'm the one woman show. I'm going to market this. I'm going to cast it. I'm going to direct it. I'm going to, you know, find the money for it. I'm going to fundraise for it. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna do all of the things that usually a team of people do, and I'm gonna do it all on my own, um, you know, with help. But like, you know, primarily I'm I'm the head of it's making it making it happen, getting the people together. Um, it's a collaborative art, and I often remind people of that too, you know. So I'm. I, I'm trying to just throw all the paint on the canvas. So it's my job to collect all the paint and be like, here you go, everybody. Now let's get up there. Let's make this happen, um, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Any last words or thoughts when it comes to producing in general that you would like to share? Um, yeah, I would say, like I said, don't get intimidated by it. Like, like I said, it really... It's, it seems like a lot because it is a lot, but it seems a lot harder when you're thinking about it than when you're in it. And so, you know, if, you've, if it's been something you've been thinking about doing and you really, really want to do it, you don't necessarily have to start huge. Um, you know, a lot of places, Philadelphia is not one of them, although you can kind of skirt your way around that, um, but a lot of places will let you perform in parks for free. No one's going to bother. And and even though Philadelphia wants you to pay $1,000 to perform in a park, um, the truth is you can pop up in a park and as long as there's not like 100 people there watching you, no one's really going to care. And so I would say start small. Start there. Be like, you know what? Me and you know five friends are going to do this you know little one-act play and we're going to go show up in a park and we're going to you know maybe pass out some flyers and be like, show up here at this time and bring a blanket and you're gonna see this great show. Because that kind of gets your feet wet and lets you see sort of, cause you're doing some marketing. Um, you don't have to charge a ticket price, but you can put a bucket out and be like, donations appreciated because then you will make some money. Um, and you'll learn about that sort of negotiating piece of how do I get these actors to do this when I don't have this capital up front? Like, how do I make that happen? So um, I'd say, yeah, if it's something you're thinking about, start, start small. And, and give it a try because I promise you, once you do, you're going to realize that you thinking about it and worrying about it and getting kind of stuck in your head was much more terrifying than what actually happened when you started making it happen. <gasps> Art is always a little bit of a leap of faith and there are going to be people who love it and there are going to be people who don't and that's okay because I don't think any time spent on it is wasted. Even if you don't make your money. I mean, I paid that man back for a year and a half, but I don't regret that show for a second. Like, I don't regret it for a second. It was a great artistic experience. It just, you know, didn't make money. Whoops. Who knew people didn't want to go out and see sad dramas in the middle of February in Chicago? <sighs> Couldn't have seen that coming. I mean, I could have. I just didn't know any better. You just have to be smart about it. It's, it's figuring out that shoestring budget. It's being like, how can I, how much can I do for how little? And a lot of it comes from begging and bartering with your friends, like bottom line. You've got to raise that money. You've got to have, you know, three fourths of your budget covered before you ever start producing. Like, I know what the rules are. Like, I, I learned that in school. Like, I remember, which is one of the reasons why I was like, I can't produce. That's terrifying. Um, but then that's just not realistic. We don't live in a world that supports the arts like that when, when you don't have a reputation and you aren't affiliated with a theater that is well known. So then you have to be like, okay, what, what can I do that makes you know, this better? What, what can I do that will get my name out there and get this thing I want to do done? I love the workshop idea. That's really a good place to start because if you can produce a good workshop, it gets people to know your name gets people to know 
you know, who you are and what you're, you know, people will remember. And then when you produce something, they'll be like, oh, well, I saw that great reading, you know, or this great, yes. I went to this great workshop. So that's, those are all ties. That's why they all kind of link to the others. And also they're much less stressed to produce. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a walk in the park there in the sense of like, I don't have to build the set. I don't have to do none of that. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for talking with me tonight, Mary Angela. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brittany. This has been great. Um, it was really nice to talk about these. No one ever asks me these things, so I'm like, oh. Oh, um, I feel like so talking to you about all of this, I just only had more questions. I promise you I'm not going to be stopping doing this kind of work anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So I will, you know, and I promise you that there are definitely many more stories I did not tell you this time. Yeah. So. Uh, you could ask me things and I would have more to say. So I'm happy to, to talk or help in, in any way I can. And thanks for listening to all my stories. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Questions. And thanks for the drink. It was nice drinking what? with you. Yeah. Sorry, I had to slow down. I was like, <laughs> started getting deep into this and I was like, all right, man, put it down. The sunset. Yeah. That was Mariangela Vedra. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. For more No Small Parts, visit our website at www.nosmallpartspodcast.com.